taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews, hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? Yes, this is Rich Take on Sports. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. And you are listening to episode number 12. And if you've missed any other episodes, please visit our website, richtakeonsports.com. You can also subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and of course, follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Now, in the Rich Spotlight, we have the pleasure of hearing from Brendan Haywood, one of the great big men that played at the University of North Carolina and who went on to a long career in the NBA. And not only does he share his journey, but he also gives us some great insight on the recent NBA draft and some of the recent news in the NBA. And we'll also start hearing about his journey into broadcasting. And so I think you'll enjoy it. Now, let's continue with this episode into the Rich Spotlight. Shining brightly to share the stories of people in sports. This is the Rich Spotlight. Our guest in the Rich Spotlight is Brendan Haywood. Brendan is from Greensboro, North Carolina, and attended the University of North Carolina to play basketball after being recruited by legendary coach Dean Smith. Now, he finished his college career as the ACC's all-time leader in field goal percentage at 63.7% and is the Tar Heels' all-time leader in block shots. During his senior year, Brennan was named to the All-ACC Conference second team and was also named second team All-American by the Sporting News. He was then drafted in the first round of the 2001 NBA draft by the Cleveland Cavaliers, but was ultimately traded to the Washington Wizards prior to the beginning of the 2001 and 2002 NBA season. Brendan was eventually traded to the Dallas Mavericks in 2010, where he won an NBA championship defeating LeBron James and the Miami Heat. He then continued the last few years of his NBA career in Charlotte and Cleveland before retiring in 2015. And Brendan began laying the groundwork for his next career in broadcasting long before he retired. And you can now find him working for CBS, ESPN, and NBA TV as an analyst. So here's Brendan Haywood. Brendan, thank you so much for joining us in the Rich Spotlight. I greatly appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Before we get into your journey and the story and uh, your in, the impact of sports in your life, there's been a lot of news with the NBA. The draft just finishing up. The trades have begun. Phil Jackson exiting out of New York. So let's just start with the draft with 16 freshmen being drafted in the first round. It's unprecedented. So what's your thoughts on this youth movement? I actually like the youth movement. I think uh, the NBA got it right as far as the GMs that were drafting some of these guys, the younger players. Um, because some of these younger guys are just so talented. And uh, even though they're 19 years old, you can tell they're some of the best players in college basketball when you talk about guys like Lonzo Ball and De'Aaron Fox and Markel Fultz, Josh Jackson. There were so many talented guys this year I saw um, on, on the college level that were freshmen that I know are going to be dynamic NBA players. So I was just happy to see them get their opportunity, and I think they're going to do well. Okay, and do you think they'll have an impact immediately? 
Uh, yes, I think all those guys will have an impact immediately just because of the teams that the teams that took them. They need players that can help them right away. When you look at the Lakers, they need another playmaker. Um, they didn't trade uh, D'Angelo Russell for nothing. Uh, it's Lonzo Ball's team. Markel Fultz is going to have an immediate impact on Philly. The same thing with De'Aaron Fox. So uh, these these young these teams that need these young guys to produce, um, I think the young guys are in a good position to do that because uh, their team is going to ask a lot of them early on. They're going to be thrown in the fire. And then who's your early prediction for rookie of the year? Uh, I think my early prediction for rookie of the year, I'm, I'm going to go with uh, I'm going to go with De'Aaron Fox. I think he's going to just have the ball in his hands uh, more, more than anybody else. I think Markel's going to have a chance to be rookie of the year, but. Uh, Joel Embiid is going to need the ball. Ben Simmons is going to need the ball. So there's going to be some other guys that need the ball on that team. Whereas when you look at De'Aaron Fox, De'Aaron Fox and Buddy Hill are the only guys on that team that can really score, get their own shot. So I think those guys, I think De'Aaron's going to have the ball in his hands a lot. And I think he might be the best athlete at the guard position in his draft. Now, moving to one of the big trades that we just had, and obviously that's with Chris Paul leaving the Clippers to the Houston Rockets and joining forces with James Harden as the race continues to try to catch up with the Warriors with these quote-unquote super team. Now, I contend that the Warriors comprise of players that are complementary of each other, where I look at James Harden and Chris Paul, I see some duplication there. What's your thoughts on that? I definitely see duplication. Um, we're, we're not used to seeing um, Chris Paul play with another strong ball handler. He's normally been a guy that likes to pound the rock. Um, but at the end of the day, I think this is a good move for Houston. They didn't give up anything major, and they were able to add one of the top point guards in the NBA. I think one of the things we saw with James Harden as the year went along last year, especially in the playoffs, was we started to see him wear down. And Houston realized that James can't do it by himself, especially when you look at teams like the Cavs and the Warriors. All those teams have two, three, even four stars that can sometimes take over games. Houston found a way to add a superstar without giving up a lot. And I think it can work, but it comes down to James and Chris talking to each other, uh, understanding um, that each of that each player is going to have to give a little bit of themselves to make the other player better. And I think they'll do that because James wanted Chris there and Doc Rivers already came out and said that Chris wanted to play with James Harden. And do you think they can compete with the Warriors? Only time will tell. Right, right now the Warriors look like they're head and shoulders above everybody else in the NBA. Uh, I, I'm not sure how to work, but it, it gives the Houston a fighting chance. It gives it makes things more interesting. Um, but to say they can compete with the Warriors, uh, we got to see how things play out. We also have to see how the Warriors team shapes out because they're going to have some guys um, that they depended on on the bench, guys like Iguodala, Sean Livingston, JaVel McGee, David West. All those guys are free agents. Ian Clark, all those guys are free agents, and a lot of them might not be back. Now, what about the implications of Phil Jackson being removed do you foresee any significant changes or impact, I should say, with the Knicks? They're already so dysfunctional. Does it even matter that Phil Jackson's not involved anymore? Yes, it does matter. It's, it's, a, it's the first step in the right direction. I would have removed him before the draft um, because I think in the draft, they actually um, missed on two of the better young guards in, uh, in this draft, in Malik Monk and um, – Dennis Smith. I think those are two athletic guards that the Knicks needed to get. They needed to get that type of youth, that type of excitement back in the garden. I think those guys would have brought that um, because not only are they great ball players, but they're super athletes as well. So um, I think uh, from the Knicks standpoint, they missed on those two guards. So I would have got Phil out of the way early, but this starts the ball moving in the, in the right direction. As long as Phil was there, it was always going to be a negative cloud over that team. Um, it's going to be, is he getting along with Porzingis? Is he getting along with Carmelo Anthony? 
Uh, is he turning off other free agents? Other free agents weren't going to come there as long as Phil Jackson was there. They, they they saw how he was treating his stars, and and it was going to be hard to win there because they saw how he was even treating his coaches. He was uh, recycling coaches, getting this coach out of there for that coach, and forcing them to run a triangle, which is a dated offense. So, uh, uh, and players didn't want to play in the triangle offense. So everybody in the NBA was looking at that situation as dysfunctional, and a lot of that dysfunction falls right on Phil's doorstep. So I think uh, getting him out of there was the first step in the right direction. Hopefully they replace him with a better basketball mind. James Dolan let that guy uh, make the right decisions. But uh, uh, Phil, Phil being gone was the first step that the Knicks needed to make. Now, you've got a lot of insight in the NBA, but you had to start at some point. So let's hit the rewind button and go back to your earliest memories uh, in your childhood. And how did you become involved in sports? I became involved in sports just because uh, growing up in a single parent household, my mom uh, wanted me to be around sports. And so she was, she wanted me to be around uh, male coaches, good, strong male figures. So she started me playing. I played baseball. I played basketball growing up. And um, it was just one of those things that eventually I just continued to grow. So I stepped away from baseball and uh, started playing basketball, a little bit of football. Didn't really love football, love watching it, but didn't love playing it. And um, basketball became something that I tried to concentrate on and wasn't really that coordinated. I wasn't really that good at it at first, but I, I grew into it. And it's funny how things work out. Like if you were to go to, if you were to talk to anybody at my high school, they'll tell you when I was a sophomore and a freshman and sophomore, the, the college coaches, they, they weren't coming to see me. I was like the fourth best player on the team. At that point, I wasn't even the best player on my JV team my, my freshman year. So then by the time my junior year came, I was probably still a, probably the third best third best player on my team. They used to come to college to see – they used to come to my high school to see a guy by the name of Vincent Witt. He was a top 25 recruit. And I just happened to have my SAT scores. And when they would come see him, they would look over there and they'd be like, hey, who's the big kid in the corner? And eventually the big kid grew into his body and things started working out for him. All right. And so, now, did you have any people uh, in sports that you looked up to, players in the NBA or college or anything of that nature? Yeah, I always looked up um, – Patrick Ewing. I, I, I was a diehard Knicks fan. Patrick Ewing and John Starks were like, they were my everything growing up. John Starks because of what he over. I saw a lot of myself in John Starks because John, if you know John Starks' career, he was kind of looked over and always had to grind to make it to where people didn't think he would make it. And at that point, you know, like no one, no one in my high school thought I would have been an NBA player. A lot of them didn't even think I'd be, when I was a freshman because I was so uncoordinated, they didn't think that I would be a college player. So for me, I love what John Starks represented. And then by watching him, then I just developed a love for Patrick Ewing's game because he was just so absolutely dominant. And that drew me to the Knicks. And uh, I became a, a diehard Knicks fan. I was a Knicks fan up until I got drafted into the NBA. I was rocking hard. And it was great for me coming into the NBA. And guess what? Patrick Ewing was one of my assistant coaches. So that was a great learning experience for me because I got to learn from somebody I always admired and respected. But yeah, growing up, Pat, Patrick Ewing and John Starks were everything to me. Okay. Going back to your high school days, what was it then that turned the corner for you to move from the uncoordinated player to now being recruited by North Carolina? When you're, when you're growing really, really fast and you're young, sometimes you're uncoordinated. And I was uncoordinated in ninth grade. Like, like, I got cut from my eighth grade basketball team. I actually got cut from I – I, I actually got cut from my ninth grade basketball team. Um, I was, and I was actually going home. And I was going on the bus, and the, head, the high school basketball coach, Coach David Price, saw me and was like, where are you going? I was like, Coach, I got cut. I'm not going to practice today. And he was like, no, 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 no. No, you need to come to practice. 
And so he actually, I was getting on the bus. He got me off the bus and told me, hey, you're going to be not going to be on the ninth grade team. You're going to be on the JV team. He told the JV coach he had to keep me. <laughs> and uh, later on in life, he told me, that, listen, man, we don't cut guys with that size. No telling what he could do. And that's probably one of the main reasons um, I'm playing basketball today is because of uh, Coach David Price. I, was, I, was, I got cut in eighth grade, ninth grade. I wasn't going to play anymore. I got tired of the rejection. I was, I was done. If I got on that bus and went home, I wasn't coming back. And so um, that's kind of how I got there. I was so uncoordinated, but I just kept going. To, the fact that I was able to play on the JV team and just keep practicing and practicing and practicing every day, eventually my skills caught up, my body caught up with the skill of the game and the speed of the game. And I went from the uncoordinated guy to the highest recruited guy probably uh, in, the, in, in the history of my, of my high school. And now you had mentioned, you know, growing up at, in a single parent family. Did you ever know your dad? Uh, I met my dad a couple of times when I was younger, but we never really had a, a strong relationship or anything like that. Um, it was always mom was mom and dad. And uh, he's, he's since passed away, but we never really had a strong uh, that that strong bond. He, he wasn't really there. And uh, that was a choice that he made. And I'm in a similar situation. I never knew my biological father. And how did that affect you as a person not having a true father figure in your life? Um, I'm not really sure how it affected me as a person because I was, I was blessed to have other people come along that were strong male influences. I talked about my high school coach, Coach David Price. He was a very strong male influence in my life. The fact that he took an interest in me. He not only just because I could play basketball, but just who I was as a person. And I saw good examples of what a good relationship is. And I look at a uh, relationship that him and his wife have together. And his son is still one of my best friends. We were best. We played on the team together and we're still best friends today. We talk every day. So even though I didn't have a biological father, my biological father wasn't around. I had a biological father, but he wasn't around. I still had good role models, uh, guys like Coach Price uh, to help me get along and uh, to help me see what being a positive male should look like. Now you've made this transition. You're highly recruited. What was that process like all of a sudden you're thrust in this so-called superstardom in high school? It, it, was, it was a whirlwind just because it's weird. You go from your 10th grade year, you're not really known. You're not on anybody's radar. You're not ranked. And then by the end of my junior year, I'm getting invited to Nike camp. I'm getting invited to Adidas camp. Um, our, our team won the state championship that year. We were a top 25 club. I think we ended up being top 15 in the nation, nas- nationally ranked, and that's big for a public school out of Greensboro, North Carolina. Most of the time, those are all private schools where they recruit players. We were just all local kids. So the fact that things came along for me so quickly, it just I just kind of took it all in stride because I didn't know any better, and uh, I just I enjoyed I enjoyed everything that I enjoyed the recruitment process. Um, I, I enjoyed uh, having a chance to meet some of these great basketball coaches like Dean Smith and talk to them and pick their brain and, and, and talk to Roy Williams and guys like that on the phone and figure out what I wanted to do um, as far as my college basketball choice. But uh, it, it, was, it was a very fun time in my life. I look back like some of those years in, at the beginning of uh, at the end of my high school year, beginning of college were some of the most fun I had uh, playing basketball and just being young in general. And then through the process, you obviously select North Carolina, but was that an automatic choice for you that that was one of your dream schools to go to, or did you have a tough decision and it ultimately came down to North Carolina? Uh, you know what? It wasn't automatic for me. People think that I grew up just uh, being a diehard North Carolina fan and North Carolina was the number one choice for me, but as weird as it may sound, I was actually a uh, Kansas Jayhawks fan growing up, and uh, that's just because my the first basketball pool I ever did 
my mom gave me a sheet, told me to fill it out, and I picked Kansas to win it that year. So I just started watching them, and I was watching them ever since. So I grew up loving guys like like Jock Vaughn and Greg Ostertag. Those were the guys that I really loved watching as a kid. And so um, Kansas was actually number one, but they were actually recruiting another guy by the name of Eric Chenoweth, and he signed before me. And so after he signed there, Roy Williams talked to me. He's like, hey, he still wanted me to come, but I didn't want to come if they signed another big man in front of me. I, I thought they didn't value me, so I didn't look at their program the same anymore. But I was actually a big Kansas Jayhawks fan, and if Roy would have offered me a scholarship first, I probably would have went there. That's how I ended up at Carolina. And then you get recruited by Dean Smith, but then he actually leaves. How was that transition of not uh, having your whole career under Dean Smith? Uh, it was tough, man, just because um, – I went there because of Coach Smith. I went there because of the family atmosphere he had created, the the way he was able to get so many big men before me to the pros, um, just how he structured the program. And the fact that he wasn't there, and uh, it was a little shocking because I thought I was – I didn't think he would be there for my full four years, but I thought I would get at least two to three years to learn from him. And um, I didn't get that opportunity. But, you know, he was still around and he was still uh, helping me out a lot. And he would pull me to the side and tell me things and show me things in, on film and things about my diet. I was a really hefty kid growing up and things I needed to do as far as just to stay in shape and lose weight and what I needed to do to become a professional. So I didn't get a chance to play for Coach Smith, but we had a lot of uh, great conversations. And then speaking of that transition from high school into college, how difficult was that for you? The transition from high school to college, it, it wasn't really that tough for me. It's because um, I didn't play as much my freshman year, but I think I, I could have played more. This, uh, I, I hadn't developed the, co- the trust of Coach Gutherson and the coaching staff just yet. But I was able to come in there and do some of the same things as far as just being uh, big inside and getting to my jump hook and dominating from a rebounding and shot blocking standpoint. I'm still like the all-time shot blocker in North Carolina basketball history. Um, so uh, I was able to come in there and do the things I did well in high school. I was able to come in there and do it well in college, too. So it wasn't a huge adjustment. Was there a particular moment or was it just a process that Coach Guthridge then did develop that trust for you as a player? Well, I don't think he had a choice. My sophomore year, Vince Carter, Antoine Jameson <laughs> all left and uh, uh, got Maktar Njai play, was, was getting some minutes in front of me as well. So all those guys graduated and, you know, uh, uh, it, it was my time. It was time yeah. I, I was going to have to step up. And uh, I was able to get out there and, uh, and and perform pretty well my sophomore year. What was that like just being a player at North Carolina? A lot of people think it's all glam and glitz, but w- was there a grind to it as well and just the spotlight always on you, you know, as you're walking around campus that you're a North Carolina basketball player? I never felt any grind being a North Carolina basketball player. I loved every moment of it. The fans love you. Um, we have a good, North Carolina has one of the best fan bases ever. And so, you know, you – being in North Carolina really helps prepare you guys that, that play in the league. It helps prepare you because you have to deal with that stardom. Like in North Carolina, you're a star, you know, like you might not be getting paid like NBA players, but when you go to the mall, people want your autographs. When you are walking around campus and you have a big game, you know, the people want to gravitate towards you. So you learn how to deal with being a star at a very early age and how to deal with success. And so um, I, I love everything about North Carolina from the campus to the people I met there, some of my best friends are people that I met in college that I'm still in contact with to this day on a daily basis. And so um, I, I love everything about it. My teammates, I mean, my coaching staff, it just playing in North Carolina was the absolute best decision I couldn't have, could have made. I couldn't have made a better choice.
What about then the transition from Coach Guthridge to Matt Doherty taking over? Was that a difficult transition? That was a little different. That was a little difficult because Coach Guthridge and Matt Doherty are very different people. And um, they're both great coaches. And we were super prepared when we were right. When we played for Matt Doherty, he made sure we were in the best shape possible. Um, as far as our, our offseason conditioning was second to none under Matt Doherty. And as far as our preparation and, take, and uh, going over things in detail, Matt Doherty was a great coach, but he approached people differently than Coach Guthridge. So you had to kind of – some guys kind of got, were turned off because Matt's a little bit more abrasive. But I had grown up around stuff like that all the time, about people that spoke there. My, my mom's a very strong-willed woman. So it's one of those things that the stuff that Matt was saying or doing didn't really bother or affect me. And, uh, but some people it did. So it was just different from a personal standpoint because uh, Matt Doherty has a different personal – the way he deals with conflict is way different than what Bill Guthrie's okay, does can as you, far as when he dealt with conflict. Yeah, can you explain what that looked like, that difference? It just looked like – it's kind of like um, Matt Doherty was more in your face. He was more of a screamer and a yeller, and Coach Guthrie wasn't. Put it simply, you know, Matt Doherty could, could – it was going to be on you. And he's going to yell, and sometimes he's going to say things that might even seem personal. And uh, Bill Guthridge is a little bit different. He's going he's gonna to tell you something, and if you don't do it, okay, that's fine. You're just going to sit down on the bench. Like, Coach Guthridge doesn't feel like he has to yell at you. Like, he feels like, like, and that was something that Dean Smith taught him. Sometimes the bench is the best teacher. I don't got to yell at you and scream and holler in your face. Hey, don't take that type of shot right there. If you take that shot, then come sit down for the next five to ten minutes. I'll put you back in. If you take the shot again, I'm going to sit you down again. Eventually, <laughs> the bench will teach any good player what to do and what not to do. I honestly think like yelling and some of that stuff I see from guys like Bobby Knight and Tom Izzo is so, so extra and way over the top. You don't have to do that to get your point across to a 19-year-old. Yeah, no, I agree with you from that aspect. And I think the most successful coaches have been able to realize that and use a, a different way to motivate players. So I, I definitely agree with you. Now, when did it dawn on you that I think I'm going to be able to take this playing career into the NBA? Probably my sophomore year. Well, my, my sophomore year, like coming into college, I was just like, hey, I want to make it through four years and we'll see what happens. My sophomore year, I started seeing the guys that were some of the higher rated guys in the nation I was hanging with and I was, I was competing against. And then at the end of my sophomore year, we had, uh, uh, we went out to, I went out to trials for the world university games. And uh, that's like almost like the Olympics for college. And I was out there competing with the Kenyon Martins and Chris Mims and Mark Madsen and all these guys that were the top, top players. And I made that team. And so after, after that situation right there, I knew I was like, Hey, if I can, if I can play, if I can, if I can hang my hang with these guys and these are so the best players in college, I can be a professional basketball player. And then now you do get drafted. And how does that feel? Because I know it had to be somewhat of a roller coaster ride. You get drafted, but then you're traded. Uh, getting drafted, it was definitely a roller coaster ride because coming into the draft, I had I, the reports where I had great pre-draft workouts and I was going to be a top 15 selection. And I was in the green room, and after 15, I hadn't really worked out for anybody else. So 15 comes and goes. Orlando picks at 15. They told me they loved me. They had a, they had a chance to pick me twice, and they didn't. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm like, okay, Detroit had said they were they going to pick me. They didn't pick me. Um, the draft went a little haywire at the top. We had some trades. Powell Gasol ended up going way higher that year than what people thought he would, and that threw everything off. 
And I was the draft night at first went from it was a bunch of highs. At first, you walk in super excited. Then when you get to pick 15 and you haven't got picked yet, you get you become super nervous because you don't want to be in that Rashard Lewis type of situation where you're in the green room crying because you slipped from a lottery pick to the end of the first round or even into the second round. And I was I was I went from hype to terrified because I didn't work out for anybody past 15. And then all of a sudden, uh, my name was called at the 20th pick. So I was just so happy to get out of the green room, so happy to say I'm finally in the NBA and shake uh, at that point David Stern's hand. That I went from happy to totally scared, and those five picks seemed like they took forever to make. And then I was ha- I was happy and elated again because I knew my, I had reached my NBA dream. I was going to be able to provide for my family, my mom, um, who definitely needed it. And then I didn't worry I didn't worry about the trade aspect after that. As long as I was in the NBA, I knew I was going to be good. Okay, so it didn't matter because in college you get to or you know in high school is your you get to select where you want to go but here in the nba it was you get drafted by who wants to pick you and then ultimately traded but from your standpoint you were just happy to be in the nba yeah i was just happy to be in the nba like once i started like at first i was like my dream was to be in orlando at that point uh trace mcgrady and grant hill were supposed to form one of the better tandems we know how that ended up turning out but i was like man i get a chance to play with trace mcgrady and Grant Hill, and and I can be a young big on that team. That's the perfect fit. That's the place I wanted to go. And when Orlando didn't pick me, and then I continued to slide, I was a little nervous. And then then Cleveland ends up drafting me, and I was just happy to be there. Orlando trades for me, so then it, it looks like oh man, I'm I'm everything ends up working out. And then Orlando ends up trading me later on that summer to the Washington Wizards because they ended up signing. Guess who? They ended up signing Patrick Ewing. That yes, summer. <laughs> that was somebody. That was somebody I grew up loving, but they, they signed Patrick Ewing. That actually led to me being moved out my rookie year. Uh, it, it, uh, it keeps coming back to Patrick Ewing, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, that was like Patrick last year, though. And then he ended up coaching me like, uh, like a year after that. Now, you get to Washington. You're in the NBA. What was that like you, the first time you actually get on the court as an NBA player? Were you scared at that point? I wasn't scared. I was nervous. I was nervous because it's the NBA. It's what I always grew up watching. It's the guys that I grew up watching. I remember my first preseason game. I'm like, I'm guarding Alonzo Mourning. Like I grew up watching him at Georgetown and watching him play for the Charlotte Hornets. You know, I'm from North Carolina. I'm from Greensboro. So I, I've watched this guy play my whole life. It's amazing. And so I was nervous And every rookie. When you first step out there, you're going to be nervous because you're playing against guys. You grew up playing either what you either watching on TV. You played as these, you act like you were these guys in the, in the backyard, the driveway, you played with them on video games. So I was definitely nervous. But then after a while, you get out there and you realize it's a grown man's game. You got to compete. The nervousness goes away. Your natural basketball instincts take over and you start just enjoying the game. Now, was it a different mentality, though, that it is still a game, but this is your job now and you have to perform because this is your source of income? Did it change your mentality? No, I never changed my mentality at all. I always had a good time playing basketball. Uh, I didn't come in with a lot of pressure. Being the 20th pick, I didn't come in with the pressure that I came in with Kwame Brown. We both ended up on the Wizards at the same time. He was the first pick that year in the draft. I was 20th, and all the pressure was on him. I didn't have any pressure. I was I just came in there and did what I was supposed to do, and uh, and uh, I felt like I could do that, and things always ended up working out for me. So I never felt the pressure. I always had a good time playing. I always enjoyed the game, working on the game, even in the offseason, things of that nature. So I had a great time, and I never felt the pressure or anything like that. Let's go back now to Patrick Ewing 
becoming the assistant coach and uh, helping develop your game. Walk us through that and what Patrick meant to you in your career. Well, I mean, it, it was great for, for me to work with Patrick Ewing just because I was able to learn the right, the wrong way to do things. He's able to tell me little things as far as uh, scouting, scouting, uh, scouting report-wise, how you play certain guys. And just teach me, and I just saw what it was to be a professional. And not only that, it's how he is as a person. Like, he's the, one of the best superstars ever. He tries to sign all the autographs he can. Um, he tries to be very polite to the fans and do things the right way. So it was great to learn that from another, uh, from, a, from a Hall of Famer. Now, you spend many years with the Washington Wizards and have, you know, one of your best seasons, but you get traded. Do you feel somewhat rejected, or what's that feeling like? No, it wasn't a rejection feeling. I remember just being on that team, and that team wasn't going anywhere. And then there's the whole situation with the guns, with Gilbert Arenas and that situation. And um, with myself, Karan Butler, and Deshaun Stevenson, we got traded to Dallas. We realized we all got traded to a better situation. That team doesn't going to make the playoffs, and um, – would eventually win a title. So um, I was actually happy for the trade. I thought it was going to be great for me. I thought it was going to be great for my teammates, and we were ready to go on to the next chapter. Now, what was that like, though? Was it a circus environment when Michael Jordan comes in? And now this is the ultimate player from North Carolina. And what was that like? Um, just watching Michael Jordan, you like sometimes you just have all moment um, where you're like, wow, that's Michael Jordan. But besides that, um, it was business as usual. It was just a little bit different because we knew he at that point he worked in the front office. And uh, it was a little bit different playing basketball with the guys, also the GM. Now, was he as engaged as the other players, or was he somewhat removed, as you mentioned, since he's got you know some front office responsibilities as well? Oh, no, Mike was very engaged. He was hands-on. He was a very hard worker. Showed the young guys what it was to be a worker. And um, he was playing, and he was trying to make the playoffs and do things the right way. And he interacted with the guys from playing cards on the plane to uh, – uh, hanging out on the bus and laughing, joking, telling stories, but he was very engaged all around. Did you feel that he could take over whenever he wanted? Was he still the Michael Jordan? Um, he was. He had nights where he would really just turn it on. He still averaged 20 even when he was 40, but he couldn't be 30-point-per-game Michael Jordan every night. And I just watched. He was able to think the game. And against guys that he had the weight advantage against, he was able to uh, dominate and get to his areas. But then sometimes I would see when he'd be playing against some of the younger guys that were coming up in the game at that point, like the guys like the Ron Artest and some of these supreme athletes that were strong. He struggled with those guys. But for the most part, he just knew he was able to get 20 points per game in the NBA simply off using his brain and his skill set. So now you'd mentioned you get to Dallas and you guys win a NBA title. You're at the highest level and you win an NBA title. What's that like? I mean, winning an NBA title is just something that I didn't even think I'd, I wasn't sure if I'd ever have a chance to do it in D.C., we were just competing, making the playoffs, and uh, just to be able to win it with a great group of guys, a group that everybody sacrificed. Um, I just felt blessed to be on that team, to be a part of a championship contending team, um, to understand now what championship culture and DNA is and what it requires. And um, we, we were able to come together and do something special because we weren't the typical championship team. Um, we didn't have four or five all-stars. We had Dirk Nowitzki, and everybody knew it was his team, and we weren't the number one seed or two seed or even the three seed. I think we were the fourth or the fifth seed that year, and we made a run, and we weren't favored against any of the teams that we played against. We weren't favored when we played the Lakers, when we played OKC, when we played the Heat, but we were able to beat all those teams because we were a true team. No one cared who got the credit, and um, we were able to do something special for the city of Dallas. Oh, yeah, you definitely were, and obviously that was a big year of the, the first year of the basically the big three uh, with the Heat. And So what was the mindset 
against the Heat, knowing that you're going against LeBron James? Or did you approach it just like any other team? Uh, the mindset against the mindset against the Heat was just simply we had to take away certain aspects of the game. Um, Rick Carlisle, excellent coach. I think he's going to be a Hall of Fame coach. He had a game plan as far as, hey, this is how we're going to limit their team. And he, he showed us the percentages of what LeBron James was shooting in the playoffs, and it was a phenomenal percentage. And then he showed us what he was shooting outside of the paint, not outside of 15 feet. And it wasn't great. It was like 17%. And so we realized if we got back in transition and we cut off the walls and we cut off the lanes and forced LeBron James to beat us from the outside, that we had a chance to win that series. And it all started with everybody um, being focused on getting back. Uh, some of our guys, as far as Sean Stevenson, Sean Marion, Jason Kidd, picking up LeBron James full court so he didn't get ahead of steam. And we had to cut the head off of the snake. And this started and ended with us with LeBron James. And Coach Carlisle said, listen, if we don't allow this guy to come down the lane and dunk on us and shoot these little shots in the paint, we can make life hard on him. And, and we were able to. We had a whole team of guys dedicated to doing the right thing defensively and a great coaching staff that, that put together a, a special game plan. Yeah, it was a spectacular performance from a team standpoint. All right, so what was your relationship like with uh, Mark Cuban, if you had one? Because he's obviously just such a unique owner in the NBA. Uh, you know, I, I didn't really have a, a tight relationship with Mark Cuban, but in passing, we would all, we would, like, you know, he was so hands-on that you would talk to him when he would be, would be on the plane in the locker room and, um, he had a unique perspective on life and how things should be done and basketball in general. And uh, some things he was spot on. Some of the basketball stuff was a little uh, far-fetched. But it, it was just great to be able to pick his brain sometimes and then just listen to what he was saying as far as just from a, a business standpoint about how he got to that point and and uh, what made him tick and what he thought was successful business models and, and even how his thoughts on how the NBA should be run. So uh, it's not like me and Mark talk all the time today. But uh, I was able to talk to him a lot and pick his brain. It's always good to get uh, insight from a billionaire. Without a doubt. Uh, We're always trying to learn, and that would be a good one to learn from. Now, you leave Dallas and get picked up by Charlotte. But now you have an injury. At that point, and you miss a season, does it start creeping in your mind that, okay, I'm not sure how much longer I can play in the NBA? Not at first. Because at first, it was just a, a freak injury. Um, towards the end of the year, I think um, around March, I had just a stress fracture in my foot, and that's no big deal. And I was fine, and I, I still played uh, played most of my first year there in Charlotte. But the doubt started creeping in the second year when I had done everything right in training camp. Uh, I, go, I go up, and I one of the first plays in training camp, I feel my foot break again. Like I feel it pop. And so then that's two years in a row. I'm in my thirties. My foot, my foot is broken two years in a row. That's when you start thinking, Hey, not sure how long I'm going to be able to continue to do this because it seems like my body is trying to tell me something. So at that point, did you start thinking about what's going to be my next career move? And what was that like? Well, I'd always kind of did things, try to put myself in a position to be successful post-career. That's one of the things they always come in. They talk to the NBA players about, hey, um, setting yourself up for the future because you can't play basketball forever. And so I had done things. I'd hosted radio shows um, when I was in D.C. and Charlotte. Um, I had worked uh, doing uh, in-studio work in D.C. Um, I'd worked for the WNBA one summer calling calling and broadcasting games for them. So I'd worked in the media field. Um, I did a blog. I did, had a very successful blog at one point. So I did uh 
everything as far as media wise. I checked the media from every different angle to see what I liked the most. And uh, when I did eventually retire, I was able to uh, take some of those skills and things I learned and uh, apply it to what I do today as far as broadcasting. But you get one more shot at it, one more run, and you, you get traded to Cleveland Cavaliers, of all things, the team that initially drafted you, and you make it to the NBA Finals with LeBron but lose to Golden State. What was that like in terms of you get there but you come just short of it? I was really just disappointed for the guys on the team that hadn't experienced what winning a title feels like. Um, uh, I wasn't really playing that much, and I was going to celebrate regardless if we won. But I know I didn't do much to help that team. I know I wasn't really getting in games. Um, but uh, I played on that team with Sean Marion as well. And we just talked about how much of a great time we had when we won in Dallas and what that experience was like. And so we wanted the guys like Kyrie and Matthew Delavadova and Tristan Thompson, J.R. Smith, guys that had uh, uh, that had an experience what winning was. We wanted those guys to experience what we felt. So I was just really disappointed that those guys that put so much into and didn't get a chance to uh, come out as champions of that year in 2015. And then now, was there one particular morning that you wake up and make the decision, I'm retiring? Or what was that process like? Uh, you know what? I actually really wanted to continue to keep playing. And uh, I didn't play a lot in Cleveland. So it was really hard for me to find jobs that I really wanted and thought were worth it. And teams were giving me options like, hey, you can come to training camp and try to make a team. But after you play 14 years, you're not trying to make a team like for Sacramento or somebody like that. So I was just like, um, if I didn't have any guaranteed options, I worked out very hard that summer. I told myself, my agent, my trainers are like, listen, if I don't have any guaranteed options by the time training camp rolls around, uh, I'm going to work out for the first two months of the season. If no one gives me a call, then I'm probably going to do something different. And then so what was that something different for you? Uh, something different was uh, it started out. I just started doing uh, working with NBA radio. And um, eventually that turned into doing stuff with uh, CBS for college basketball. And that group and turned into me doing stuff for NBA TV and ESPN. And and um, eventually this turned into my, my second career and what I'm doing now, just, um, just being a, a card-carrying member of the media. Now, do you enjoy radio or TV more? Uh, I enjoy it. I enjoy all of it. I enjoy the aspect of TV and getting out there and articulating my points and and um, and having debates and, and doing things of that nature. But at the same time, I enjoy radio too because radio, you're in touch with the fans. You're taking callers. You're able to educate them on some of the things that, that you see or that you know that they don't know about the game. Uh, you know, and, and that's a great that's great too. Like I like you take a call from somebody in Charlotte and they'll be like. I think that we should go after Kevin Durant free agency. And then you have to explain to him, hey, man, small market teams normally don't get those type of players, and here's the reason why. And so I think it's, I really enjoy doing both. I, I enjoy interacting with the fans and uh, educating them on what it is uh, to be a professional and what really goes on and what happens. Now, how different is it from a work standpoint, you know, a preparation? You know, As an athlete, you're obviously preparing a certain way, but do you carry those type of life lessons over into your career in terms of preparation and obviously wanting to be the best you can be in, in your current position? Oh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a lot of preparation, especially um, from the college basketball side because college basketball changes every year. In the NBA, you know, you know who the best players are, and even if they change teams, you know their games and and what they like to do. But in college, the best players are guys you, from year to year, 
are these young guys coming in out of nowhere out of high school and you don't know who's who. Even though you watch Kansas all the time last year, you got to watch them again and totally understand who the new kid on, is on the block. Or uh, if, if a team like Dayton creeps into the top 25, you have to be able to tell fans um, about Dayton, their style of play and who their best players are and why they're successful. So college is actually really demanding. you got to stay up and watch these West Coast teams, teams like Gonzaga or uh, St. Mary's, all these teams that you know, I, I would have never watched two years prior. And now I'm up there watching Dayton play Richmond on a Friday night because I want to be able to tell fans about Scoochie Smith. You know what I'm saying? Okay. <laughs> so it, yeah. it's, just a, it, it, it's just one of those type of things. Now, have you ever been approached about going into coaching? No, I never really got approached about – well, actually – as far as um, I have some people in Denver want me to come in as far as like uh, working with their bigs, as far as uh, skill development. And, and I just never really wanted to be a coach. Well, why would you not want to coach? Coaching is way more hours than even being a player. And uh, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that. Like coaching every day, you have to put like the average coach on a game day in the NBA, the, people don't realize how much goes into it. They think the coaches just show up with games, but you know, on a on an average game day, you have a shoot around in the morning. Coaches show up two hours to three hours before that for a meeting, and then they have to work out guys before shoot around, then after shoot around, then they might get a quick nap, come back, and they're back out there um, working out guys and going over things around four four thirty. Guys that aren't playing, then you have to go over the scouting report with the team. And then there's the actual coaching aspect of the game, and then uh, getting out of there at like ten thirty. So you look at an average coach on a game day walks into an arena at 8 o'clock and he's busy all day until about you know, 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. I just didn't, I didn't want that. Yeah, no, I can understand that. There is uh, something to be said about a balance between life and work. All right, so, Brendan, as we're wrapping up here, you know, you've had an illustrious career and maybe somewhat unconventional as you grow into your size and mature and become a, a player in the NBA at the highest level, win an NBA title. So what type of impact has sports meant to you in your life? I mean, sports has had a major impact in my life just because um, I was able to go to college because of basketball. I, I'm, I'm not sure if I've been able to do that without basketball because uh, we, we probably didn't have the money. Um, so I'm not sure what I'd have been doing as far as, uh, go, as far as college goes and getting a great education at the University of North Carolina. Sports also gave me a way for me to provide uh, my family and live a different lifestyle. And it also provided a second career for me. After basketball was over, I was able to go into media and uh, transition into uh, the gold, the older years of my life. So uh, uh, sports has given me everything. Uh, I have a lot. I, I, will bas- I will just basketball a lot. I really do. And um, it's been a magical ride. And I'm going to. I'm just very appreciative. That I, even though I'm retired now, I still get to talk about basketball and watch basketball games because even though I don't play anymore, basketball is still my passion and I get to do something I love every day. Yeah. Does it even feel like a job for you? Nah, man. I always tell people uh, that this is the best job ever because I was going to watch the game that they're paying me to watch anyway. So <laughs> I might as well get paid to talk about it. That's right. All right. Well, speaking of some other things to talk about as we wrap up at the final question, I always ask everybody, uh, Brendan, and that's just some words of wisdom for our listeners. And if you can share any words of wisdom that has meant uh, something to you in your life, I'd greatly appreciate it. I mean, my only word for wisdom, words of wisdom I would have would just simply be to find something that you really like, work towards that goal, and have a plan to get there. Um, I think a lot of times people don't have a plan for their life, and that leads to them going off in the wrong direction. 
you want to have a plan and your plan might not always go go to where you want it to, but if you have that plan, then you can pivot off of it. You know, I've seen so many people have one direction and they want to go in that direction. It doesn't work out well, but they're able to pivot off of that plan and do something else. If you don't have a plan for your life, you're probably planning to not be successful. Well said, sir. Well, Brendan, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it and look forward to your continued success uh, in the media. And uh, again, thank you for your time. All right, man. Appreciate it, man. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And just hearing his story, it's something I never knew. Just the rejection that he felt in eighth and ninth grade of not making the team, but a coach decided to keep him involved, and that's all it took. And he ran with that after that uh, feeling of being wanted and not allowing the rejection to define him, that he could make it. And it just shows you again, never give up. So I thought it was an excellent story, and I was so glad that Brendan shared all of that. And I'm telling you, I think he's got a long career in broadcasting, and I think you're going to be seeing him quite a bit in the years to come. All right. Well, that wraps up episode number 12, and I just want to thank everybody for continuing to listen. And until next week, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening. <laughs>